Once again, to the Weird Sisters podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Manning, and I have worn Sunrise. Joining me is Liz. I'm currently wearing 3 p.m. last Tuesday, and I should probably get changed. (laughs) (laughs) Our book this month is I Shall Wear Midnight, the story that asks, what if the true witches were the friends we made along the way? Now, going into this, I imagine you suspected it was a Tiffany book. Yeah, I mean, they have very specific cover design versus the rest of the books, so they're pretty easy to spot. Um, but yeah, I like the Tiffany books, uh, Tiffany Aching books, so they're fun. I was excited for it. Originally published September 2nd, 2010, and coming in at over 106,000 words, I Shall Wear Midnight is the 38th Discworld novel and fourth in the Tiffany Aching series. The title, which was also a line in the previous Tiffany Aching book, is inspired by the first line of the poem, Warning, by Jenny Joseph. The rough music described in the book is also known as Sharivari, or Shivery, and Skimmington, and refers to a tradition of mock serenades and mob action that has been documented as a practice throughout Europe since at least the 14th century. The wedding ceremony evokes a mix of traditions, most notably the Jump the Broom ceremony that has been historically performed in both the British Isles and West Africa, as well as the Iranian New Year Festival, whose name translates to Scarlet Wednesday. The audiobook for I Shall Wear Midnight is read by Stephen Briggs and lasts 9 hours and 45 minutes, with the Tony Robinson abridged version coming in at 4 hours and 20 minutes. Nice. Yeah, nice. (laughs) The story won the 2011 Andre Norton Award and Geffen Award, and was nominated for both the Mythopoeic and Locus Awards. At time of recording, it has yet to be adapted for stage or screen. We begin in the rural countryside known as The Chalk, where its resident witch, Tiffany Aching, is attending a fair. While she is keeping an eye out for the people, two little girls come up to Tiffany and ask her about her love life, a sore subject as we soon learn that Roland the Baron's son, and the boy she's been closest to ever since she rescued him from Fairyland eight years ago, is engaged to the daughter of a fearsome duchess. Tiffany at the start of this book is, like, so on edge, and it frankly, like, stressed me out for the good, like, first quarter of this book. (laughs) I, I mean, I can see why, right? Yeah, and I think I was just a little extra sensitive to it, uh, because it kind of put me in a weird headspace, like, a few years ago. I was in a really rough place with my mental health and everything, and I felt very burnt out and exhausted and kind of just like perpetually grouchy. And this very much made me feel like that at the start. And so it was a bit of a challenge to like kind of get past that at first. Yeah, it gets much better, but definitely like starting to read it, I was like, oh, this is going to be a big one, huh? (laughs) I mean, yeah. Yeah. After Tiffany leaves the fair, that evening she has... A duty to perform as the witch. Uh, We don't give a lot of trigger warnings on this show, and I apologize to those who were caught off guard by stuff we've just casually mentioned. Uh, So before we go further, I want to say, for the benefit of anyone following along with the show who hasn't read the book, that there are some plot elements that can be super triggering to a lot of people. And if you don't want to hear them discussed, then it's okay to skip this one. You're not weak or foolish for not enjoying when entertainment shoves sensitive material into the spotlight. Yeah, 
This one definitely like has some things that really caught me off guard and made me feel a little like squeamish for a good portion of the book. Yeah. So while I think it's a great book, I think it's also very understandable if it's just not going to be good for you. <laughs> As the witch, Tiffany has to deal with some of the worst parts of the world, including caring for the sick and elderly, childbirth, and tonight, Mr. Petty. It's uh, unspoken common knowledge that Mr. Petty is an abusive husband and father, and upon learning that his daughter was pregnant, he beat her until she had a miscarriage. This crossing of the line has incited the wrath of the whole village, who are forming a mob to enact justice on Mr. Petty. Tiffany tells him to run before they can catch him, and he reluctantly agrees. Now, part of this scene includes the rough music, which signals the mob mentality that Tiffany opposes for many reasons, not the least of which is that when she was much younger, the people of the Chalk killed a harmless old woman because they suspected her of being a witch. Tiffany's horror at her community was part of why she ended up becoming a witch herself. The other reason why she became a witch is rooted in her book of fairy tales, where Tiffany recognizes that girls with like mousy brown hair like hers didn't get to be heroes, but that becoming a witch meant that she could still be important and powerful in the story. Yeah, this book definitely starts out like giving you a lot of places to direct some anger, I guess is probably <laughs> the best way to put it. Yeah. And... Uh, like, I, I very much understand what it's doing in the story, and I'm not necessarily against it, but it was definitely, like, it was hard to get through. Mm. Kind of some unexpectedly serious stuff, right? Yeah, especially compared to, like, thinking back to the first Tiffany A. King book, where she's just, like, this, like, sweet, like, nine-year-old girl, precocious as she is. Like, this is a very sharp turn from that, and to some extent, even though it makes me uncomfortable... I think it works because, you know, the world isn't always nice and Tiffany is growing up across these books and it makes sense if the things she needs to deal with also get more grown up and less magical sometimes. Yeah. Although, like, as I recall, Tiffany was never super sweet necessarily, but like, I definitely see what you mean. Yeah. She's just definitely more innocent. There's not like, you know, this kind of talk in that book. And you know, that's the old woman who's basically abandoned by the town for being a witch, even though she wasn't, was like present in the first book. But because it doesn't happen in that book necessarily, it doesn't feel so pressing as this does. Hmm. I think I understand. Yeah. I think it's just Tiffany's had some distance from it at that point to understand how she feels about the situation and to deal with it and... I don't know. This is just like the events are very much going on. So there's not that temporal distance. Hmm. So having sent Mr. Petty off to run for his life, Tiffany finds his daughter, Amber, and brings her to recover with Tiffany's friends, Vanak McFeagal. I think they, as the books go on, kind of start to lose a little bit of their, their narrative utility. I don't necessarily like hate that they're there, but they definitely get less present in the books and I think are just kind of pushed a little bit more into comedic roles which is totally fine considering the other serious stuff that this book wants to talk about. While the Feagles are caring for Amber, Tiffany goes back to her witch duties, caring for the people of the town, not the least of whom is the elderly Baron, who's been ill for a long time. While Tiffany is magically taking away his pain, the Baron at one point asks how she keeps her hands clean, 
which she demonstrates by using the same magic redistribution power to stick her hand into the fire. There are several digressions about fire in these early chapters, including a part here or a bit later, I think, where the Baron recalls being a young boy and seeing a hare jump through a brush fire, uh, later learning that hares basically move too quickly to get singed. I think this book especially really heights, uh, highlights Tiffany's like fondness of fires, and there's a lot of like interesting things in there you can pick through if you want to get into some like uh, textual analysis. You know, we in a basic level need fire. We need the warmth. We like the comfort of it. You know, fire cooks our food and keeps us safe. But it also can be incredibly destructive if it's not paid attention to with the care it needs. And the fact that Tiffany quite likes fire, I think, says a lot about her as a person. Yeah, I definitely see where you're, see where you're coming from on that. Also, just like fire has associations, especially in like Western cultures, with uh, knowledge, right? And just like mm-hmm. Tiffany prides herself on being smart. Yeah. So it's like, I think, you know, if you're somebody out there who's in school and needs to write a paper about a book, I think this is a good one to do that with. <laughs> Unfortunately, when Tiffany is demonstrating the fire trick, the Baron's superstitious nurse enters and gets entirely the wrong idea. It doesn't help that not too long afterwards, the Baron passes away. I like that in the Baron's final moments, he has this like very like deeply emotional clarity, it kind of seems like. Because we haven't gotten to see him a whole lot throughout any of the books. And so it feels like we get this very intimate and like close moment of him right here at the end. That explains a lot about Tiffany's relationship with him and the actions that happen in this book as a result of this scene. And, you know, Roland's connection to his father. Because obviously that's going to be a really hard thing to get through. Yeah, very much so. While the castle staff are fretting about the Baron, Tiffany volunteers to go find Roland, who has gone to the city of Ankh-Morpork with his fiancée and future mother-in-law. They run into a bit of trouble when one of the Feagles tagging along accidentally sets fire to Tiffany's broom, and they all crash into a mail coach. As Tiffany is helping the mailman sort out the damage to the coach, and also solving his muscle spasms thing, She is confronted by a monstrous apparition, a man with no eyes, who yells at Tiffany for a moment before vanishing. Unnerved and with her broomstick damaged, Tiffany hitches a lift on the coach into the city. I was kind of like caught off guard with it, not because like anything startled me with it, uh, but because like there's obviously this thing here that's proposing so much tension and is obviously a threat. And Tiffany is just very like, analytical and like almost apathetic about it and it it, it's just uh i guess i was surprised by how much i was doing um to support the places that the narrative was trying to get me in that scene even though tiffany was not the one like leading there Hmm. i think it's probably worth mentioning that we've been talking about the continuity a lot but like it's yeah (laughs) it it factors into this book more than most of the other tiffany books Mm mm-hmm Since the first Tiffany book, she's been very, like, collected and analytical in the face of peril. Yeah, yeah. I was just like, oh, okay, here's this, like, big, scary, like, unknowable threat. And then Tiffany's just very, like, I don't know, very Tiffany about it. In Ankh-Morpork, Tiffany sends the Feagles to locate Roland, while she finds her way to Boffo's Joke Shop 
the premier institution for gag gifts and costume parts that are invaluable to anyone pretending to be a witch, including those who actually are ones. <laughs> of all the things I was surprised to see in this book, the, like, backstory of the Boffo joke shop was not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> At Boffo's, Tiffany meets the owner, Mrs. Prost, who turns out to be one of the very few actual witches in the city. She's able to give Tiffany a recommendation for broomstick repair before the two of them hear the ruckus that can only be caused by the Knack McFeagles. What do you think of Mrs. Prost? She's an interesting character. We don't necessarily get like a lot of time with her in this book, but I feel like she just adds this weight of what it's like to be a witch that's not necessarily from Tiffany's perspective and how so much of it is an act of how you portray yourself to the world and the fact that you know she has designed the witch's masks to look like her and so she obviously from what we've heard in the other books looks like the very like cartoonish stereotypical witch I don't know that just added a lot of complexity to this thing that could have been very very shallow you know, being a witch is a lot of things, and there's a lot of weight that comes with it. Yeah. And she's definitely, like, a very human character, I'd say. It's like... Yeah. The way she is, like, very business-minded, but, like, not to the point of self-parody. Yeah. And, like, the way she cares a lot about her son. Yeah, she seems like a very, like, tender and thoughtful person, despite the fact that she has that, like witchy stoicness that all of the witches do i think she was a fun change up for a character that could have very easily been just like granny weatherwax yeah or like just cut me own throat dibbler but a witch yeah she just provides a little bit of like novelty and the characterization here or like it could have just been that balfo's was owned by somebody named balfo who just like sold to witches and didn't have much character beyond that yeah and there'd be a joke about who just you know witches are an underrepresented market Sure enough, the Feagles have located Roland, but also got it drunk enough to start an extremely destructive bar fight at the tavern where he's staying. Tiffany watches in astonishment as the City Watch send in their smallest officer, Wee Mad Arthur, who appeared in a couple of previous books, and turns out to be the first person Tiffany has ever seen defeat the Feagles in combat. It comes to light that Arthur is actually a Fiegel himself, but was raised by gnomes and never knew his real family until now. This is the second thing on the uh, moments I didn't think were going to happen in this book, is we met Arthur getting a backstory. Yeah. <laughs> he was introduced as a gnome, I think. Yeah. Which clarifies that mm -hmm. he was just adopted. So it's like how Kara is a dwarf. Yeah. Forgive me for kind of harping on the usual criticism I do, but like after this scene, Wee Mad Arthur doesn't really factor into the plot, although he tags along and it's just like, mm. Yeah, it's definitely, he kind of pops in to have this moment of like, wow, look at this. It's coming, like all, it's all coming together. And then the second that set moment's over, the book moves on and he is forgotten. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there could have been a it's like uh, legal stuff relating to the Feagles comes up later, and I feel like We Met Arthur could have helped with just sort of the enforcement or something, some angle on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like they do also have the Toad lawyer lives with them. Yeah, who I kind of had forgotten had existed until this book uh, brought him up again. Yeah. I think he appeared briefly in a more recent one. Yeah. But like, yeah. I was just like, oh, yeah, that frog, the one that was in the first book, and then it was not important enough to, like, cross my mind again. 
Roland's fiancée's mother, the Duchess, blames Tiffany for the havoc. Then the eyeless spirit appears again and seems to turn the entire crowd of people against Tiffany. So she and Mrs. Proust agree to be taken into police custody. This is also where we get a cameo from City Watch mainstay Angela von Überwald, who has been promoted to captain. Yeah, it's like I definitely thought the book was going to stick in Ankh Morpork longer than it does. Spoilers for the next like five minutes of the show. <laughs> but it was kind of nice to just to be like, oh, here's a, like a brief check in on a couple of characters and we're not going to like hang too much on this. I mean, they have their own stories that we will see more of. But yeah. Yeah, it's just like, oh, we just get this like little blip and oh, look, it's the characters you know and love and they're actually doing something with uh, some usefulness in this book of moving the plot along and now we're just going on. While she and Tiffany are in jail, Mrs. Proust mentions the city prison and the special wing they have for people too dangerous to hang. She also says that each of those prisoners gets a little pet canary. An interesting world-building detail, because I'm pretty sure that that's a real thing that happened. Huh. I guess I've never heard of that, but I guess that would make sense in some context. The following morning, it turns out that the Feagles have repaired the tavern that they destroyed. So the Watch releases Tiffany on grounds of not having any idea what crimes to charge her with. <laughs> this is also where Tiffany is approached by a mysterious woman who leads her into a secret getaway under the magical dump next to the Unseen University. Ladies and gentlemen, she's come a long way to be here tonight. <laughs> All the way from Equal Rights, Escarina Smith! <laughs> Crowd applauds. <laughs> yeah. Were you expecting to see Esk back? Not at all, and I, like, love the vibes she's bringing. <laughs> she's kind of been turned into sort of the Discworld version of the Doctor, but, like, that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, she's got, like, fun aunt vibes. It's also mentioned at one point that she has a son, which is like, a, it's a blink and you miss it uh, reference, mm -hmm. but like, kind of want to hear more about that, but mm, don't hold your breath. <laughs> yeah, it's like, Esk was so young in Equal Rights that it's like, she's obviously had so much life to live in between there and here, and it's like, what kind of adventures did you get to? Who is your son? Yeah, we won't get like official answers for that, but that's what fanfic is for. Yeah, <laughs> fills in those fun gaps. Esk gives Tiffany some background info on the spirit what yelled at her. He's known as the Cunning Man, and basically he was a witch hunter who fell in love with a witch, and when he attempted to rescue her from being burned at the stake, she dragged him into the fire. That feeling of betrayal basically turned him into not just a ghost, but the very avatar of witch hunting. Now, wherever his spirit goes, people start hating witches, often to the point of murder whether the person they're murdering is actually a witch. And of course, Tiffany's antics in the previous books have brought her to his attention. Yeah, I think this is kind of like a fun inversion on a trope we see a lot like this, where basically like two people who are falling in love, like cross stars, all that kind of thing, and choose to be together despite the risk that that might bring. And the fact that you know, this witch is obviously not going to be into this dude. She doesn't know who he is, probably. And he's just, like, facilitated putting her on a pyre. So, of course, her first instinct is going to be like, nah, burn this dude down. Yeah. 
And that the, like, especially since the being that becomes the, like, evil force after this event is not the witch like it is in a lot of things. It's the dude who facilitated all of these things that put the witch in this position. And it's his betrayal and his anger that are the evil forces. It has nothing to do with the witch's magic. Yeah. It's not, like, justice it's kind of revenge, but also just, like, a refusal to to change. Yeah. When Tiffany gets back to the chalk, she is appalled to see that the new baron's guards have been ordered to dig up the Fiegel Burial Mound home to retrieve Amber Petty. Uh, a quote here that I really appreciated, which illustrates one application of a lesson we've heard a couple of times. Evil begins when you treat people as things. And right now, it would happen if you thought there was a thing called a father, and a thing called a mother, and a thing called a daughter, and a thing called a cottage, and you told yourself that if you put them all together, you had a thing called a happy family. Mm -hmm. It's a reminder that human beings are infinitely complicated, and often not in pleasant ways. I don't know about you, but when I hear the phrase, treat people as things, my initial interpretation is that of some devious villain manipulating and exploiting those around them for personal gain. But this passage clarifies that it's just as harmful to let your preconceived notion of the world take priority over the nuances of individual lives, especially when it leads you to ignore legitimate sources of harm, such as domestic abuse. Yeah, I think that's a really like insightful reading of it. And I think the thing we all kind of fail to see is that often when we're hurting the people around us, it's because we're trying to see them through a very specific and very simple lens that does not often account for what they want and how they feel about it. Because it's like, you know, Roland's obviously grieving here. It's understandable if he makes some questionable decisions. And he's not necessarily doing anything out of malice or an intent to hurt. He's just being reactionary because he is hurt. And he sees this thing that he thinks he can fix by just doing this thing and not and fails to see the consequences that that would have. And also there's an element of enchantment, right? Because part of the cunning man's whole thing is that he influences people to turn against witches. And so that at least... And so there is at least one magical effect making people distrust Tiffany. So when that's like the base layer uh, that people are operating on emotionally and they hear the, the witch has taken a kid and put her with the fairy folk, you can see the logic, if nothing else. Yeah, it's like if people already feel on edge, they're going to jump to the worst the second they hear something. To appease the crowd, Tiffany takes Amber away from the Feagles and back to the Aching Farm, where they both get some rest. The next morning, Tiffany goes to the castle to see what's happening with the preparations for both the old baron's funeral and the upcoming wedding. This leads her to see how the Duchess treats her daughter, and against Tiffany's wishes, she begins to feel sorry for Letitia. We'll talk think, a little bit more about Letitia. The Duchess definitely cares a, a whole lot about, like, her position in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we will understand why, I think, a little later. Yeah, it's like a... I think the reveal of this provides a lot of uh, emotional complexity, so I think let's definitely wait on it. So the Duchess spots Tiffany and orders one of the guards, Preston, to lock her in the dungeon. But in an act of malicious compliance, Tiffany locks herself in a, in a cell. A 
think it makes a lot of sense, you know, especially considering that Tiffany just spent, what, the previous night in jail? Um, and Mrs. Proust explains then that they're not being locked up because they did anything wrong. They're being locked up for their own safety against the people of Ankh-Morpork. And so if Tiffany's, you know, reading the signs and can tell that people are really on edge, especially regarding her, that, you know, being somewhere where they know where they are, they know where she is, but can't get to her, probably will do a lot to keep her safe and give her some opportunities if she just lets it. You know, I hadn't put it together quite that way, but you're definitely right. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, Letitia comes down to the dungeon and seems apoplectic with apologies. So that night, Tiffany crawls out through the dungeon chimney, which this dungeon has, don't worry about it, <laughs> and sneaks into Letitia's room, where she discovers the truth. Letitia always wanted to be a witch, but was basically forced into the role of the princess. What's more, Letitia has a witch's capacity for problem solving and legitimate magical powers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Letitia being a witch was definitely not something I expected. I was expecting her just to be kind of, you know, the uh, kind, gentle princess. And then it's like, no, she was like a, a complicated character here. She had to live with the same fairy tales that Tiffany did. Yeah, literally the same book. Mm -hmm. And it turns out she's also eight days younger than Tiffany. And so like, you know, <laughs> uh, magical number of eight on the Discworld. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's definitely like some elements of, they're kind of like reflections of each other. Despite all their differences, they're more similar than at first glance. I do also find it noteworthy that Tiffany doesn't seem to be more jealous of Letitia after this is revealed. Mm -hmm. Tiffany doesn't have inherent magic ability uh, the way that Letitia seems to. Yeah. She worked very hard, as Escarina points out at one point, and became a witch just like through grit, more or less. Yeah. It would be understandable, definitely, if Tiffany was just like, how are you this way? Because mm -hmm. Tiffany does on some level want to be the beautiful princess. Yeah. And like, this girl is everything that <laughs> the storybooks depicted, and also a witch. Yeah. Just, like, naturally gifted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then if you wrap up, oh, this person that I was interested in is now with you, and I'm already heartbroken about that, like, yeah, that would very easily add a lot of layers of, like, frustration and jealousy, I think, to the normal person. Yeah. And so it's actually commented on, Letitia is kind of confused why Tiffany isn't more upset with her. Mm -hmm. And it's just, like, Tiffany is very practically minded and and like thinks through her emotional responses mm -hmm. that's the whole thing with the first second and third thoughts yeah it's she definitely acts with a specific sort of clarity in these kinds of situations that really sets her apart from the other characters so it turns out that Letitia did a spell trying to make roland stop liking tiffany presumably rooted in envy over tiffany being the witch and jealousy over her fiancé having a close relationship with another girl. Unfortunately, her spell attracted the attention of the cunning man, and now he is hunting Tiffany down. I did enjoy just, like, the play on 
Because sympathetic magic is the real-world magical tradition that gets associated with, like, voodoo dolls. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like unsympathetic magic being the thing is fun. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, okay, if you're going to call it this, then what would the opposite of that thing be? And, like, just also, because it's mentioned that Letitia did the spell using a wood, a not very good wood carving of Tiffany, just labeled witch... I think the implication there is that she sort of summoned up this thing that hates all witches. Yeah, it's like the lack of specificity as far as the magic is concerned ultimately <laughs> like kind of puts a target on everybody's back. Yeah, because like it's not just the thought that counts. It, as Tiffany says, it's the actions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tiffany returns to her cell for a few hours of sleep before Roland has her released. And during their conversation, she pledges to marry him. A heck of a Freudian slip. Yeah. Uh, oops, and big secondhand embarrassment. <laughs> it's like, despite the fact that this, like, definitely, like, made me cringe, I can at least appreciate the little bit of closure that it brings, you know, kind of addressing the, like, what might have been, but just acknowledging, okay, that's not the path that we're on, and that's okay. The cunning man continues to pursue Tiffany, coming at her from books and mirrors and tapestries, until Tiffany gets another visit from Esk, who basically gives her a, a pep talk. I think the thing that this book illustrates really well is that, you know, the witches are very much uh, shown to be incredibly self-sufficient and they want to be that way. And Tiffany especially wants to be that way. But that sometimes you do need help and help comes in a lot of different forms. And the support that Tiffany gets from other characters in this book I think is a big part of her kind of healing from the hurt she has at the beginning and growing to be a more fully formed version of herself. Very well said. Yeah that that was a big thing I took from the book so we can like go away more in depth with that later. Tiffany scares away the cunning man by threatening him with fire and then Preston persuades Tiffany to take some more time to actually rest. Back in Ankh-Morpork, Mrs. Prost learns from one of the prison guards that an extremely dangerous murderer has escaped and, unthinkably, killed his canary on the way out. Mrs. Prost realizes that the prisoner has been possessed by the cunning man, and she races out to the chalk. The cunning man, like, possessing this random inmate definitely feels a little out of left field for me. Yeah, I agree. I actually have a thing to run by you at the end, so... That's totally fair. <laughs> at the old baron's funeral, Tiffany is surprised at the arrival of senior witches Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og, who have accompanied King Verence and Queen Magrat of the nearby country of Lanker. Although witch etiquette won't let them admit it, Granny and Nanny are here because of the cunning man. And in the tradition of how witches interact with each other, Tiffany implicitly declines any assistance. Of course, there's also the unspoken understanding that if the cunning man possesses Tiffany, then the other witches will have to kill her. It's interesting, the like, individualism of witches in this story, because that's, I think, generally mm-hmm. understood to be like a more masculine approach, like stereotypically. Obviously, like that's not strictly yeah. true. Yeah, but I definitely do think you're right. You know, there's this sort of expectation that men are kind of like uh, emotionally separate from their problems and can do everything by themselves and how witches are the ones who are embodying this these sorts of character traits here but also that witches have to do so which i think reflects a sort of judgmental 
attitude that might ring true depending on like your personal experience. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that despite the fact that those are very stereotypically like expectations of men, we all can kind of fall victim to that. And it's just how does the world treat us in a response that differs? That night, Tiffany goes out to face down the cunning man and Preston insists on joining her. They find a field, which is set up for a clearing fire, and which is also where Roland has been abandoned by some of his friends following his bachelor party. <laughs> and of course, Letitia soon joins them. We have to get all the Scooby gang back to the <laughs> primary location. So Tiffany sends Preston away on her broomstick as part of a secret plan, and tells the other two to do as she instructs. The three of them run from the cunning man towards a section of field where Preston, on Tiffany's orders, has started the fire. Tiffany orders Roland and Letitia to jump through the flames, in doing so officiating their wedding, using the inherent magic of the ceremony and also the literal fire. Tiffany burns the cunning man to death. Brutal. Wasted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a short climax, not gonna lie. Yeah, I mean, there's so much build-up to it, and then, like, this is, like, over and done in, like, maybe 30 pages. Like, the actual fight is just, like, three, if that. Oh, yeah, it's real short. Most of it's just running them running through a field. Yeah, and, like, obviously, I don't... This being Discworld, it would not really fit if the problem was solved by, like, a big, epic, magical duel. Yeah. I think probably just a little bit more description and, like, not even ceremony, but, like, build-up and such, maybe? I don't know. It does feel a little underwhelming. So, with the evil defeated, at least for another generation, life goes on. Roland and Letitia have their official wedding, after which the new Baron offers Tiffany a generous reward for her services. She declines, asking instead that the money go towards a number of other things, including Amber getting the funding to marry her boyfriend, for said boyfriend to become a tailor, for the chalk to build a school, and for Preston to get trained as a doctor. Lastly, she asks that Roland grant the Fiegels legal rights over their part of the chalk, so they never have to worry again about people threatening their home. Yeah, the actions that Tiffany takes here definitely feel more like the resolution than defeating the cunning man kind of to me because Tiffany is very burnt out at the beginning of the book and I think it makes sense that the resolution for her healing from that is the problems that she was facing being fixed on a scale that requires more than just effort from her yeah definitely although I think there's also the whole thing with being a witch is that like you're constantly doing stuff for other people and like mm -hmm. it might be healthy to prioritize her own needs occasionally. Yeah, I think that's a very big weak spot for her. And I think this book makes that especially apparent. Not long after that, Escarina returns one more time to arrange a meeting between Tiffany and her future self, who offers some words of kindness. Tiffany notes that she is wearing a black dress and a new necklace, one adorned with a golden hair. This very necklace, we soon see, is a gift from Preston. Aww. Not sure how he afforded that, but, you know, love finds a way. <laughs> Don't think about it too much. So, with a new black dress, courtesy Amber's husband, and a bright future ahead, Tiffany Aching decides to wear Midnight. So, what did you think? I quite like this book. You know, like I mentioned earlier that the beginning was definitely a little tough for me to, like, get through. But I think that if I had found this book, like, five to ten years ago, it would have been, like, hugely influential for where I was in that part of my life. And I think that this 
you know, despite the heavy topics it definitely touches on, is a really good read for, you know, teens and young adults um, who are, are kind of trying to figure out their place in the world. And, like, Tiffany did kind of figure out her place in the world, like, kind of a long time ago, but... Yeah, it's just, especially with her wearing the black dress at the end of this book, it just kind of feels like she's really and completely stepping into being a witch in a way that feels very, you know, adult and final. Yeah, and like also the whole thing with wanting there to be a school on the chalk is because she wants everyone to have the education and opportunity to discover what they want and are good at in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean, especially if you're in that kind of small town, it's really easy to just kind of end up doing whatever somebody has available that week because there aren't a whole lot of other opportunities. And so you don't really ever get a chance to think about what you might want to do and what you might be good at. Not related to anything, there's a mention of one of the castle guards writing poetry for his wife who's self-conscious about her freckles. And the poem relates those freckles to the stars in the night sky. I, I just thought that was really cute. Mm -hmm. It's a very, like, tender, thoughtful moment. I think some better romance in this book than we get in, like, a lot of other stories. Yeah, and I think it's definitely one of those things that I could see where maybe Pratchett was pulling that from his own life, you know, trying to connect how his love for his wife or his family, like, makes him feel, how that affects his art, and then transposing that into the sergeant writing poetry and also just like tiffany being a very practical person is partially rooted in feeling that the romantic life is not really something that she has access to right mm -hmm. she's not the pretty princess who gets to marry the handsome prince or whatever and yeah. so she's just sort of built up this almost wall of sensibility which is also part of her core self but she's turned that into armor against the world yeah and, like the uh, golden hair necklace from preston definitely i think is a level of romance that she wasn't expecting to ever find now that roland has gotten married to someone else yeah it's kind of like Roland getting engaged to Letitia feels like a switch that starts a transition for her where she can, you know, kind of open herself up to that. And I think on a larger scale in this book, a big part of Tiffany's journey is understanding she doesn't need to just like be so isolated or just isolated with other witches. You know, she can have Amber and her boyfriend who are just like kind people she sees sometimes in town and really likes, especially since Amber obviously is not quite a normal person um, in her understanding of languages and things. And then Preston being this very like intelligent and thoughtful person that she meets who takes care of her and has the same favorite word. And Letitia even being a witch and then having the life that Tiffany, you know, might actually have wanted and still getting along with her and being friends, I think, to some extent. I, I think her journey is her gaining this network of people who she cares about deeply and who care about her and it makes the hardships of being a witch easier to bear and opens her possibilities up to include more than just being a witch 
I'm right there with you. And actually, I want to go back to something you mentioned briefly, is that Preston and Tiffany have, like, an actual conversation about words and, like, thinking about them. Because, like, one of the first things we learned about Tiffany is that she read the dictionary, like, all the way through. Yeah. And how susurrus is, like, her favorite word. And I don't think Preston says that it's his favorite necessarily, but, like, he is the one who brings it up in the conversations. Definitely, they're compatible. Yeah. It's like, okay, here are these two big old nerds who just really <laughs> like talking about the definitions of words. And, you know, that's not that big of a thing. But when you have a weird quirk about yourself and you feel like a little isolated from other people, seeing that in somebody else can be so inspirational and re rejuvenating. Although that is kind of also the thing that she talks about a lot with her and Roland kind of assuming that they were going to end up together, right? Yeah. She says, I think, a couple of times throughout this story that they were two people growing up as kids who were different from their peers and because they were both different they thought that they were alike mm -hmm. she definitely recognizes that 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 is not true and that this is kind of how it was always going to end up but i think it still genuinely stings and like she's just barreling forward to the correct conclusion without like necessarily processing her own grief at like this thing that she hoped for getting taken away as a possibility yeah yeah because it's like if you've imagined for years and years and years that this is the trajectory of your life it's very hard when that suddenly changes regardless of the reason you know especially when if you're as isolated as Roland and Tiffany seem to be where they kind of only really have each other in this little town well now suddenly the one person you thought you had isn't there anymore yeah but like the way Tiffany connects with Preston in this, it would be nice if he had been featured in any of the previous books, but you know, <laughs> yeah. he's still very cute. Yeah, I quite like him. And I think I've read enough books where I've come across romances where I don't necessarily like see what the two characters see in each other. And this one I definitely do. You know, it's brief, like incredibly brief, but it's also not a romance book. So I'm not too terribly torn up about that. Mm -hmm. But Preston definitely like shows himself to be a very intelligent, very thoughtful, very compassionate human being and somebody who can look out for Tiffany when Tiffany fails to look out for herself. And we talked a little bit about Letitia as well, that she wanted to be the witch and feels forced into this role and how delighted she is when Tiffany basically explains to Letitia that she is a witch and also the princess. Yeah. And also uh, we mentioned the Duchess, Letitia's mom. The whole reveal with why she's so obsessed with her position as the Duchess and everything is because I think it's implied she faked her like original noble heritage to get married to the Duke when she was act mm -hmm. but like she was actually a dancer in presumably Ankh-Morpork. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, the Duchess and Miss Proust know each other, and Mrs. Proust gives the Duchess a talking to. Well, it's like not even necessarily a talking to, it's just somebody from the Duchess's past being just like hey, I know who you were. And the Duchess was like, oh. Mm -hmm. Which I guess factors in kind of to the change of heart that she has at the party where she stops being quite so horrible to people. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely do think the book kind of hints at that earlier on. Like, you know, Letitia talks about how their home, they live in this big old castle, presumably, basically just kind of the two of them. But it's also all of their servants. And when their servants get too old or sick or injured to work anymore, then they live in the castle and the servants take care of them too. And 
you know, that's a thing that you have to be a very like thoughtful and compassionate person to do anyways. And maybe the Duchess has buried herself under these layers of hostility to hide her own insecurities. And probably the stress of her daughter's upcoming wedding probably was not helping with that. But despite the fact that she was a very unkind and cruel person, that, that doesn't necessarily mean she's a bad person. She's just done bad things. Like the whole system with the servants taking care of other servants. What if they just removed the noble family from that? Yeah, you know, just a thought. Yeah, just living in some sort of communal settlement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's like y'all can still live in the castle. That's fine. Also, just going back to Mrs. Prost or Proust, it's O-U, so I'm assuming it's like a U sound like U. Yeah, it's a name I've never seen before, so no clue from me. <laughs> And like neither of us uh, listened to the audiobook, which would probably be a no. good choice. <laughs> anyway, Mrs. Proust and Granny Weatherwax interacting is interesting because like they both are presented as very proud individuals. And Mrs. Proust mentions offhandedly earlier in the story, kind of looking down on rural witches, whom she calls hedge witches. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a brief mention of hedge wizards or something much, much earlier in the series. Huh. Probably has faded from continuity. As <laughs> nobody remembers that aside yeah that's uh definitely not ringing any bells for me (laughs) what an interesting concept (laughs) yeah and tiffany expects that when the two of them interact there's going to be an explosion and just they refuse to have that explosion i don't know for sure whether mrs prost and granny weatherwax already knew each other or whether they just figured out that people were expecting them to like have some sort of big argument and just decided in sync to just not put on that show for them yeah i mean i think you know like game probably recognized game there (laughs) they they just realized you know they didn't need to hash it out they're both very confident witches in their own respects As we've touched on before, the strength of these novels tends to be in the language and moment-by-moment scenes, while the larger plot structure can be kind of flimsy and unfocused. Hear me out on this. When Tiffany locks herself in the dungeon, what if the people of the chalk started to rally because her being imprisoned meant that she wasn't out helping people, and that built into like a protest almost? But then the cunning man would possess not a random prisoner, but Mr. Petty... And turn the crowd from wanting Tiffany released to wanting her dead. Yeah, I mean, I think that'd be really interesting. And I think it would add a lot of weight to the idea that, like, anybody can fall victim to this mentality and reduce the randomness of it just being some unnamed prisoner from a place Tiffany has been to once. Yeah. It would also mean that, like, Mr. Petty wouldn't just get away with abusing his family. Because, like, there's a scene not too long after Tiffany, like, sends him away that he comes back and, like, showed some compassion for the child and, like, tried to hang himself. Mm -hmm. And so Tiffany cut him down. He was at least capable of enough emotion to feel genuine remorse for what he'd done. Mm Mm-hmm. But, like, that's also, like, part of the pattern of abuse is, like, sincerely or not saying that you're sorry and falling right back into the same behavior. Yeah. Which hopefully won't happen, at least to Amber, but, like, Mrs. Petty is still, like, living in that house with him. Yeah. You know, I think Mr. Petty especially has a lot of, like, motivations, too, for being susceptible to the cunning man. Because I can't remember exactly how the book puts it, but ill will goes where ill will is already welcomed. Yeah, poison goes where poison's welcome. Yeah. Mr. Petty already has these, like, angry, hurt feelings regarding Tiffany, whether or not they're, like, exactly her fault. But maybe his embarrassment and shame and frustration that he ultimately takes on in her would 
make him a pretty good candidate for falling victim to the cunning man. Yeah, definitely. The other definitely much worse person that the cunning man could have possessed would be like Tiffany's father. Oh God, can you imagine? Yeah, that would have been devastating and probably too dark for this series. Yeah, that would be like a hard tragedy. (laughs) Yeah, I say too dark for a book that features like an abusive husband beating his daughter into miscarriage. Yeah. Yeah. Having both of those and like all the other stuff happening in the same book probably would have felt too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I mean, that would have been like emotionally a lot in a book. And there are definitely books that can pull that off, but I think it would feel a little out of place in Discworld. Yeah, but yeah, like I can definitely see just like a a little bit more compact version of this narrative, right? Probably what you'd do if you adapted it. I mean, I think all of the Tiffany Aching books would make great movies that if you just like put one out like every two or three years as the actress playing Tiffany grows older would be impeccable masterpieces. (laughs) Depending on the actual execution, obviously. Yeah, you know. (laughs) I think that could be talked about how the climax was kind of anticlimactic for like of a better word yeah and i think they could have been perhaps strengthened if what if the whole chalk was out there with the cunning man and like they all bore witness to the wedding ceremony and like that helped snap them out of like the hatred of witches is like seeing tiffany facilitate this act of love yeah especially because like the cunning man may be like an actual entity with these motivations but really like the harm he causes is that he basically riles people up into hating witches like he hates witches and that hatred in just normal people is just as dangerous or potentially more dangerous than he is on his own Yeah, it almost weakens him to make him, like, work by possessing folks, because, like, the Hiver did the same thing in A Hat Full Mm -hmm. of Sky. And I feel like it would have been perhaps more interesting if he couldn't do that, but it was just a presence that needed to be, like, exorcised by changing people's minds on, like, a larger scale. Yeah, and I think that probably, like, would have worked a little bit better narratively because it's like none of the things that we see in this book are necessarily like one bad person doing a bad thing and just being bad you know um mr petty basically excluded yeah but it's people letting their hurt and frustrations and insecurities allow them to be cruel Similar to a few other thesis statements I've made about these books, I'd say the core of this story is that dwelling on the idea of how the world should work has destructive consequences on those around you, and that you can find both strength and exciting new possibilities if you focus instead on honestly understanding what is already there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that take on it. Mm -hmm. Same way that Preston is a bad guard, but... He thinks about stuff in an interesting and new way that shows he's better suited for something like being a doctor. Mm-hmm. Also, like the cunning man is focused exclusively on this idea of witches as like a bad thing that he needs to kill and completely ignores the good that they do for the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like being hyper-focused on a possibility can like insulate you from actually like genuinely interacting with the world 
in a meaningful way. So, housekeeping. Thank you, as always, Liz, for joining me in the discussion. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you to Willow Carter for our theme music and to everyone who's listened. If you like the show, please consider giving us a follow on various social media sites. Want to support us in continuing at least through the last three books that we've got to get through. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's wild. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, if you want to help fund that operation, you can do so on Patreon. Doing so gets you access to the footnotes, episode previews, and of course, one randomly selected the patron gets a specific shout out each episode this month we salute carol for sticking with us thanks carol and of course no episode of the podcast would be complete without a reading of the fan vote for the favorite footnote the forget me lots is a pretty red and white flower usually given by young ladies to signal to their young men that they never want to see them again ever or at least until they've learned to wash properly and gone a job. (laughs) (laughs) That's it for this month. Join us again next time for Snuff. Until then, the The turtle turtle moves. moves.